0: Welcome to the podcast for the Australian Podiatry Association. This is where we catch up with some truly interesting people, talk about issues affecting podiatrists and their patients, as well as a range of broader healthcare issues. I'm Nello Marino, CEO of the Australian Podiatry Association, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Joining us today from Hampshire in the UK is Dr. Ivan Bristow. We're talking case studies, and in particular... Ivan's recent article co-published with Alan Borthwick in June of this year in the Journal of Foot and Ankle Research titled The Mystery of the COVID Toes, Turning Evidence-Based Medicine on Its Head. Ivan is a regular visitor, as many would know, to Australian shores, and it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, Ivan. Thank you so much for chatting with us. We appreciate you calling in.
1: It's good to be here, virtually. Yeah, I can't be there in person, but this is second best.
0: Yeah, we would have ordinarily seen you around this time, so um, we, uh, we'll will take the next best thing.
1: Yeah, I was, as you say, I was hoping to be there, but uh, never mind, I can still be here in voice.
0: And as many would know that uh, Ivan has a prodigious uh, following in Australia, I'm sure the podcast will have many of our audience uh, listening just uh, by the mere fact that, that it is Ivan on the on the other end. Um, your article, Ivan, if we can go to it uh, at this point, mentions a renaissance in case studies, and that this type of research previously relegated from many mainstream journals as a low level source of evidence is permitted the rapid dissemination of clinical data, particularly in um, more recent times. Um, in relation to this, what many are referring to as COVID toes. So tell us, first of all, what was the impetus behind the article, Ivan
1: um, I suppose it was two things. Uh, at this time in the last few months, I've been working with the College of Podiatry and uh, we, we have a committee, what we call the COVID Committee, And one of our tasks was to keep members updated with uh, any developments relevant to podiatry in terms of uh, COVID-19 infection. And of course, what became very clear about March-April time was the uh, reports coming out of uh, Spain and Italy regarding the mysterious appearance of chilblains in children and young adults who had no previous history. And so this is all very exciting because very rarely does podiatry get to the forefront of the news. But It was on uh, all the front of the newspapers in the United Kingdom, and I'm sure many other countries about looking out for these chill could be a sign of COVID-19 infection. Of course, it was all speculation, really, at that point. And um, the other direction for me was that uh, I have to say I'm a great fan of the case study. And a good case study can can, uh, really rapidly turn around and report things that are novel, that are new, and they reach the parts that RCTs can't reach in terms of getting that uh, new information out there very, very rapidly. And um, not only being a great educational tool, I think they're also very readable. If you look at the the data from uh, many studies, it shows you how case studies are actually read because they're almost like short stories. They have a sort of narrative to them that makes them attractive to the casual healthcare reader. And, um, one thing that I'd noticed, and uh, evidence-based medicine is something that uh, I did a uh, master's degree back in uh, the 1990s at the University of Oxford. So I've always had a soft spot, if you like, for evidence-based medicine. And one of the things that uh, was very apparent was the hierarchy of evidence. So everything um, had to be at the highest possible evidence of systematic reviews and uh, randomized controlled trials, etc. And the poor old case study got pushed out but it actually has a place. And what COVID-19 really did push forward for me, and I noticed immediately in the literature, was here was something completely new, no one knew nothing about, and there was no evidence for it. So the only way in which we could rapidly report this was to deliver lots and lots of case studies, which eventually pushed the whole um, thing forward to uh, leading into further research. And it was that, I suppose, that inspired me to write, to think, well, hang on a minute, something is coming back that we long tried to forget as a a minimal piece of evidence. But we should never forget that that minimal piece of evidence is the way in which we get new novel things out there. Many of the great discoveries in medicine have appeared first as a case study and gone on to do great things. But uh, yeah, it's just really, as I say, seeing the renaissance of the uh, case study was a was quite exciting for me, and it, it really did remind people that evidence-based medicine includes all types of studies, each with a different role.
0: Mm. So, very much on the, fo- the focus being on the hierarchy of, of medicine. So, so your suggestion, um, Ivan, from from that is that um, that the case study should be more enabled during these sorts of times rather than rather than poo-pooed or lambasted during this, this sort of this sort of uh um, situation
1: i i think it's what what has happened if you look over history is that it's been removed from the mainstream journals it's uh, most of the journals these days really only want to deal in um higher levels of evidence which is fair enough but um Of course, the case study hasn't quite died because many of these major journals, and I I use the comparable um, area of dermatology, is that many of these case studies now end up in separate journals. And they end up in separate journals because people still want to read them and people are still reading them. They may not get cited as much, which is what a lot of journals want. But the readership, because they are short, punchy narratives about interesting cases, appeals to the average consumer of research the healthcare practitioner on a on a 10 minute coffee break will pick up and read a short case study rather than a long rambling randomized control trial on something else so they they've always got a place and um i think this may in the aftermath make journal editors stop and think well actually there is a good case for a case study mm-hmm. and i think the the other thing we forget is that we we want to encourage more people to get published We need to get more people interested in research. And it is well known that the case study is that early platform to get people writing, to develop their writing skills, to develop their uh, clinical deductive skills, and to put that into a form which can gradually build up into a portfolio. And I only speak for myself. The very early work that I did was case studies because I enjoyed writing. They were short. You could master your craft, which then took me on to other things. So I think for everybody. And every good journal should have a few case studies just to make people stop and think.
0: Mm. So uh, your suggestion is that 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 likewise applies to podiatrists in this instance?
1: Yeah. And and case studies are are good for one's personal development, their CMA or CPD. Uh, You can, everybody, you know, everybody in clinic will see something interesting every week. And sometimes you spot something which is very novel and it's good to get it out there. If you look at the things like needling of Veruca, where did that come from? That came from a collection of case studies. That was a report that wouldn't have appeared anywhere else if it were not for case studies. Um, it's, it's, it's really the, the first step along the the road to sort of research, I suppose, and, and writing and publication. And we need more people to become interested in questioning everything they do. And that, that's a good little vehicle to do it. And it's not a, an onerous task for someone just starting out.
0: So not a panacea, but just another part of the fabric of of research and a a piece of the puzzle.
1: Yeah, yeah. And as I say, every every different type of study has a different job. Mm. And the key thing with a case study is it reports rapidly novelty, uh, clinical development and so on, which can later laterally be tested through other types of research. So it, it gets new things into the system very, very quickly. And that's, that's the key to the case study can't prove anything. It can't really um, prove causation or prove that something works, but it gets people interested. And so other people try it and the research builds.
0: Yeah. So, so on the issue of case studies, um, Ivan, and to take your point about the resurgence and the potential resurgence of case studies through, um, well, one of the learnings of, uh, of the COVID crisis, um, how would you suggest that in the future for conducting case studies that, um, you know, you propose that researchers, because there is an inherent, uh, for want of a better word, subjectivity or bias that goes with them at times. So yeah. how do we, how do we, you propose that the, that researchers, you know, really address that issue of subjectivity?
1: There are on in, in the literature there are lots of papers about how to write case studies. And it's it's a good learning tool in that it, it develops one's patient's presentation skills, if you like. It allows them to write and focus on the things that are important. So there's the educational side, but I think it's just following the format. And like most things, it's it's about emulating what's already out there and for for me and for many other people who write case studies, you read as many case studies you can and think that's a good part, that's a good part, these are the key points and this is the point I'm making and a good case study is very, very short but it, it covers the detail, it covers the, the main clinical points in the assessment enough so that the reader can be convinced actually there might be something in this that we need to test for example with a randomised control trial or it may be a case series which gives a a bit more evidence to take it along that route so it's Mm. the structure is there it's it's a well tested it's as old as the hills in medical research it's the oldest oldest sort of piece of evidence going is the case reports go back thousands of years so um the format is there people have just got to get into habit of writing them it's just an extension of their clinical notes and adding a bit more reasoning
0: so so to to be clear ivan you're not for a moment suggesting that you know, we just uh, we turn our research on its head and you know, strictly go to uh, to case studies. You, you're suggesting that it just does play a part. It's probably been overlooked to some degree over recent times.
1: Yeah, and and you could take that more broadly in context. The whole thing about evidence based medicine. Now, when I did my MSC in the 90s, rem- uh, remember what evidence based medicine was about. It was about the Uh, use of clinical evidence but on the other side of that balance is the uh, use of published research versus one's clinical expertise and I think what has happened as years have gone by is the pendulum has swung very heavily in evidence-based medicine in favor of published research to the extent that if it's not published then there's you know it's no good there's no evidence now that may be the case but when you have a patient sat in front of you with that particular problem, then there's no way do. You have to bring it back and say, well, evidence-based medicine tells us to do the best with what you've got, but add in your clinical experience. And this is important. It brings the clinician into it to make, because after all, if we were all to run entirely to Uh, evidence we wouldn't need practitioners we would just run from guidelines we would all be automatons if you like carrying out guidelines and uh, procedures that have been pre-written but it's that clinical experience that we should always add into that i think
0: so ivan um case studies, there's a strong suggestion that there is some sense of bias and subjectivities. Um, How would you propose that uh, researchers reduce uh, this subjectivity in, um, in the preparation of case studies?
1: Yeah, naturally case studies will always have that inherent within them because they're only reporting on one or two specific cases quite often. But I think the key thing is to say that these uh, types of reports have been around for thousands of years, quite literally. And uh, in the literature that we have today, there are lots of resources and structured published guidelines in the writing of case studies, which will help to improve one's ability to get the key information across, uh, to make the relevant points, and also to reduce bias as much as possible. So Absolutely, compacting it down to the essentials, if you like, to make it a short, readable piece, which is very, very um, sub- well. Some of it's subjective, but as objective as a case study can be. And if it's a good case study, then often that will stimulate others to uh, continue that good work and take it forward to something like a randomised control trial, for example. But there is there is good guidance out there, and uh, many of the case report journals for the major journals will have um, very good guidance on how to do that. Mm.
0: You've talked particularly, I mean, obviously the uh, the paper is related to to COVID toes. Um, in the instance, I mean, in this instance, uh, it would appear that there's not a lot of evidence around uh, on COVID toes as an example, um, Ivan. How else can podiatrists equip themselves with the best knowledge base on a subject, particularly when there is no uh, evidence-based research or papers available on a particular
1: topic? That's, that, that's a tricky one because it, it goes back to, to the sort of point, what do we do if there is no evidence? And ultimately, that comes down to clinical experience. And in a way, that is just below the case study, if you like, in terms of the hierarchy of evidence. But it's it's about consensus and it's about agreement between practitioners based on their own opinions of their own practice. And this is where you sort of get to the point of uh, groups of consensus groups and even sometimes social media groups, dare I say, where people are sharing opinions and what they found in a very informal way to uh, to try and best. Um, make their way through. And I think all of the major healthcare organizations, including those in podiatry, have had to work on that basis in in advising their membership. And uh, that's often based on government guidelines and other pieces of evidence. But it is a tricky time when there is no evidence. And on, on those occasions, you really have to just rely on on clinical experience with the of the best of what you've got so there's I don't think there's any clear-cut answer but um, you just have to try and I think if you look at therapies for treatment of patients who have COVID-19 um, there has been some good research in terms of testing of new drugs but some of the other uh, things that have been discovered have been through small case studies saying that drug x is good drug y is and ventilation and so on. And that's come through case studies as well as alongside the more formal um, studies that we've seen.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so uh, perhaps moving more to the issue of COVID toads, COVID toes in themselves, um, Ivan, the you suggested earlier that the findings of case studies often generate hypotheses for larger scale research studies. Do you, do you, are you aware of any? Um, current studies on to the, in the subject of uh, COVID toes that um, well that you're willing to mention at least.
1: Yeah, I I think what what's interesting is that since these case studies started appearing in the literature, um, immediately you had a number of organisations, particularly dermatological organisations around the world who asked their members and members from overseas to collate this information. So effectively, they were gathering data almost like a massive case series. And consequently, because people have all, if you like, chipped in their cases to these databases, we've seen very large amounts of data being amassed in a a database. And yes, it suffers with the usual problems of bias, but it's certainly been the best way when there is no evidence to collate cases together and interestingly what this has found or what this data has shown it's it's shown the sort of typical presentations on the skin of covid19 of course it's not all about the chilblains. there are general rashes on elsewhere on the body but immediately it's given a, a much stronger picture if you like a snapshot of the types of skin reactions that we're seeing and um, as far as covid toes goes the um The research there has probably been a little bit quiet of late, and I don't know whether it's just because of the initial rush and the excitement, if you like, of uh, a new condition in the times of great need that we we saw this flush of papers. But latterly, it has gone a little bit more quiet. Um, Good research takes time, and I can only suggest, because I'm not aware of any specific uh, studies being undertaken, that uh, we may well see those at this moment being in the planning stage, but latterly they will uh, become much more uh, available as they're published and completed. And certainly this, I think this is the direction we're going in. The The last, uh, last sort of major piece was the review of, I think it was about 300 cases of this. And um, latterly there was a hypothesis put forward, which seemed very uh, plausible as to why these uh, lesions were carrying in the toes of young adults and children, but uh, there hasn 't been any mention since of any new work that I know of, but uh, who knows what 's going on in different institutions at this time mm.
0: you, you were also mentioning and we obviously were having a discussion prior to this uh, this uh, podcast recording about. Um, some of the, I suppose the unintended, um, outcomes of, of COVID from a personal perspective. Um, you spoke about, about people's interest in themselves and so forth. Um, mm. and the suggestion that, um, you know, perhaps COVID toes isn't purely pathophysiological, pathophysiological, pathophysi- uh, but rather, um, you know, uh, coincidence of the, the COVID virus, virus, or even an effective lifestyle change during lockdown. I mean, what, what do we know? I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in your comment about just about some of those impacts of COVID on the individual, um, Ivan, but, but also just to, to perhaps give us any insight in what we actually do know are, uh, what are the facts about, about COVID toes that are in, um, in the public domain, uh, so far?
1: Yeah, so the the bottom line is really that there is a lot of, well, there is a lot of case studies which are suggesting that it's more than just, a, a you know, a chance finding. And studies have shown that the, well, on a number of measures, and this is the problem, how do you measure whether there are more chill pains than usual during this period? Mm-hmm. Um, and different researchers have taken very unique approaches, for example, looking at Google searches. Now, it, it's been said that the number of Google searches in a, in a paper have gone up for chilblains on the toes, and this seems to have preceded the information that came out from Spain and Italy first reporting this in the media. So there is a, there is a suggestion that this was going on in doctors' surgeries, perhaps, and presenting in doctor' surgeries and patients noting all on their children, for example, were searching this long before it became widely known. Um, but latterly what we what we do know at the moment is that histologically there has now been some uh, biopsies carried out on these lesions and they are virtually identical to Mm geoblanes so that's led to the evidence really being into two different camps if you like there is a a lot of the research is suggesting that this part of covid19 and yet there are papers that are still very, very cautious, saying that we shouldn't really make this assumption until we've got further evidence. Although it does appear that we've had far more chillblains than we've had at any other time. Now, you're absolutely right, is it? Because people are doing things very, very differently to what they would do normally. For example, in lockdown, they're stuck indoors, they may be uh, wearing different types of shoes, there's whole different aspects of that, which may account for a large number of chillblains. But it, it does seem quite Quite unusual if that that is the case, but we mustn't rule that out. Now, um, there was one hypothesis put forward suggesting that uh, chillblains, and this is based on other medical uh, evidence, that chillblains occur when a lot of interferon is released by the body in response to viral infection in young adults and children. And what we know from similar uh, rashes and skin disorders is that uh, that it will cause jawblains, So one of the main hypotheses, which seems the most plausible, but I have to stress unproven, is that uh, in children, young adults, when they become infected with COVID-19, it would appear that they are able to defeat the infection much more rapidly with the innate immune system by the release of interferon. And they do that because they're physiologically able to reduce uh, to release large amounts into the bloodstream and basically uh, knock out the replication of the virus. So that would fit with the idea that children and young adults don't tend to get it so severely. Mm-hmm. Consequently, this release of interferon leads to the development of these children's. But that tends to be a latter phenomenon. So that will happen maybe two or three weeks after the infection has been cleared by the uh, by the person. And, of course, not all children and young adults show these, and we don't know why, but certainly there may well be a group who are showing this as an interferon release. And as they come on three or four weeks after the infection has been cleared, of course, many of these who've been tested come out negative. And that hypothesis would explain that, because by the time the children show, then the infection has long since been cleared. Mm it's 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 quite an interesting one but the the bottom line really nello is to say that nothing is in proven in concrete although there is increasingly you know strong suggestion and hypotheses that can explain the increase in chillblains. although as with most medicine it's 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 about being very very cautious to make sure you're actually giving the right evidence at the right time and at the moment we don't know 100 percent for sure if there is an association but I, I have a feeling there is certainly something in this. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the hesitancy has also been around the fact that with the similar infections we had before, like the SARS and the MERS uh, viruses, which are closely related, there have been no skin symptoms at all. Yet we have the COVID-19 infection and we're getting about 20, 30 percent of patients who are having skin lesions. So it's it's behaving very differently to very similar viruses. So there's a there's a lot of uh, lot of unknowns in this, but I'm sure with time and a bit more uh, detailed research, which will take time, we will we will get to a an answer, hopefully.
0: Some fascinating stuff there, too, and and clearly some meaty stuff. I expect we'll uh we'll see quite a bit of bit of research. I, I suppose the difficulty is that uh, you know, potentially once the pandemic's over, and obviously we don't know when that is, Ivan, but. Um, uh, you know, the need to, um, you know, conduct, conduct rec- retrospective studies on, um, people's experience that, that have experienced or that have, that have encountered, um, you know, uh, COVID toes or chill through that, uh, and, and contracted the virus as well.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I think you raised an interesting point with that question about people's habits during lockdown mm. and, As I alluded to earlier, some of the early researchers looked at Google Trends, which is a means of finding out what people have been searching for on Google. And um, it goes much broader than just COVID, because during this time, I suppose people have been sat in lockdown, not sure what to do. So they've been spending more time actually studying themselves rather than being occupied with other things. And a number of reports in the dermatology journals have shown, for example, we've seen an increase In the number of warts um, inquiries on Google, we've seen increases number of um, cases of melanoma being discovered in one study from London that the the rate of melanoma diagnosis has not gone down. So if there's a positive to all this, the lockdown and the effects of it, um, it's been that it gives people more time to study themselves and to look at their health in a much more detailed way.
0: So perhaps a, a bit more of a focus on, on self and probably the things in this case. And hopefully, uh, health is a beneficiary of this, uh, Ivan, you know, with, with all the, you know, it's sort of ironic in some sense that we've got, uh, we've got a pandemic happening, but at the same time, uh, people having the opportunity or at least those that are well having the opportunity to focus on themselves and, um, identify what, uh, where there may be some, um, uh, some some uh, um, you know, changes, for want of a better word.
1: Yeah, yeah. And as with all things, I think that there's good good things and bad things that come out of difficult mm. times.
0: Mm. So, so Ivan, in summary, your paper makes a, a strong case for case studies. Just to, yeah. in summary, what what do you see as the the major advantages and and disadvantages? And how could we use them? Um, that is, case studies uh, more effectively in, in podiatry in the future.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think they are an important step to generating new knowledge, new discoveries, new findings, often chance findings, and. This is something that should be encouraged. And I know with respect to organisations, it, it depends how they disseminate information, how they publish information. In the United Kingdom here, we have um, a journal which is a good vehicle for case studies. At a higher level, Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom, we share Journal of Fort Ankle Research, which doesn't cover those areas. It doesn't cover case studies as a, a standard type of paper that it would publish. But that's absolutely fine. I think there needs to be Uh, an outlet for this i think in some ways people should be encouraged to report more of these unusual findings when things don't go the way they should but there's an unseen benefit it's about the practitioner at the practitioner level inspiring people to say hang on a minute this this didn't go the way i expected but actually there was a positive outcome let's let's analyze that and see have we discovered something new here Have we um, seen something we've not seen before? And if there was some means to doing that, then some forums, some outlets. I mean, who knows? Maybe we need a a journal of case studies specifically within the field of podiatry. Um, But they are relatively inexpensive and quick to turn around. They're a good educational learning tool for people writing them. And I think students, you know, something that they can do very, very easily And it's somewhat been lost, I think, over time. I remember as a student many, many years ago for me that case studies were an important part of honing one's skills in recognition, diagnosis, prognosis and treatment. And it's perhaps bringing it back in some form, shape or other to to bring the case study back for a number of reasons. It's it's not going to prove anything in terms of it's not going to ultimately decide whether treatment A is better than treatment B. But it will certainly get people interested in being more curious, perhaps becoming more researchers is definitely what we need, but also suggesting new ways in which we can advance the profession through discoveries and novelty. So from that respect, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm a great fan of the case study. I enjoy Goods case study. They're short, they're readable and they're very popular. You know, they are things that do get read in, in various journals and online. So uh, long may they continue,
0: Ivan. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time today. We've 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 learnt uh, a lot about you know the potential resurgence of uh, of case studies and the importance of case studies, in particular, um, you know as an entry point for you know many practitioners and others, um, and in a way as a way of generating interest. We've also obviously touched on. The issue of COVID toes, which you, you gave us, uh, gave us a little bit of a um, detail about some of the uh, the factors associated with that. We um, we look forward to having you uh, as part of the, these podcasts again. But again, thank you
1: very much for your time today. Thank you, Noah, and uh, it's been a pleasure to speak to you.
0: Um, just before we do sign off, um, if you are a podiatrist um, and happen to be looking for resources, tools or CPD, make sure you check out the APodA website at www.podiatry.org.au for a range of ongoing updates and downloads, such as our Stride magazine, as well as a list of upcoming CPD activities. If you're not a podiatrist, but uh, you'd like to speak with a podiatrist, head to podiatry.org.au and uh, check out, find a podiatrist to locate a podiatrist in your area. Um For those who like to catch up with the wider community um, uh, in podiatry, hop on over to our social media feeds at facebook.com forward slash Australian Podiatry Association or Twitter at APOTA underscore national. Uh, Thanks again to you all for listening. Thanks again to Ivan. And again, until next time, stay safe and take care.